in Galatians this morning, if you want to turn with me, it's Galatians chapter 2. Um, it will come on the screen as well. I'm just going to dive right in. We've got a lot to talk about this morning. So it's Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to read through from verses 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All that they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Right, so let's get a bit of context. If you remember from when we've looked at... Um, uh, Galatians, so I forgot the name of the book then. When we've been in Galatians before, what's going on? The, the, the situation that Paul is addressing is that there are a group of people who are going around saying, it's all very well that you've accepted Jesus as your saviour, but you know what? Um, God cares about the Jews more. So if you want to accept Jesus as your saviour and you're not actually Jewish, you have to kind of become Jewish first and then accept Jesus. So in other words, you have to be circumcised. That's what people were saying. And Paul was just... His mission was to say no to that. No, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to become Jewish. That's rubbish. That's Paul's mission. That's what he's fighting against. So, in this passage, he goes up to Jerusalem with his friends Barnabas and Titus uh, to have a meeting with some of the key leaders there to just check that those leaders, that they understand what the true gospel is and to see you know, whether they've bought into this idea that you, know, you need to be circumcised as well. So he goes off, he takes his Gentile companion, Gentile means non-Jew, so he takes his Gentile companion, Titus, who's from Greece, and he preaches to them his Gentile gospel, and I imagine that he is kind of anticipating a difficult conversation. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you know you've got a tough, tricky conversation coming up, and you're, you, know, you, you know that this other person thinks differently to you, and you're not really sure how it's going to go, and you're hoping it will be positive, but... You don't really know. And it's kind of a nerve-wracking situation to be in. Maybe you've been on the other side of it when you've been in trouble and you're waiting for the conversation, like you're waiting outside the head teacher's office. Or, you know, I remember for me, waiting, wait till your father gets home and hears about this, that kind of like, oh, I'm waiting for this conversation and I'm waiting for the fireworks. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm feeling anxious. So what would happen? This is what Paul's going to Jerusalem. What's going to happen? Are they going to get there and they're going to go, 
well, Titus, you are Greek, you're not from a Jewish background, so actually you need to go off and get yourself circumcised. Will they listen to Paul's gospel and say, no, 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 Paul, that's not quite right. You need to add this bit in, and you, forget, you forgot to mention this. What is going to happen when they meet these leaders in Jerusalem? Well, verse 3, it tells us Titus was not asked to be circumcised. Lucky Titus. Verse 7, it says, nothing was added or modified or disputed to the gospel that Paul presented to them. In fact, it says this, they recognized I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. They gave us the right hand of fellowship and sent us on our way, agreeing, you go to those people, we'll go to those people, it's fine. It's the same gospel. What a result. That is exactly as you want your meeting to go, isn't it, really? It turns out these guys in Jerusalem, they weren't the bad guys. They weren't listening to the, the false uh, the truths that were being... False truths? That's not a thing, is it? The false gospel that was being preached. They weren't listening to that, so they agreed. No, this is the gospel. You just take it to the circumcised, and you take it to the uncircumcised. Bingo. Perfect. However, as they leave Jerusalem, these are the parting words. Verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. And that's what we're going to look at today. That verse, remembering the poor, the thing that united them along with the gospel, that they didn't need to discuss or dispute, remembering the poor. So let's look at that together. First of all, I want to say that remembering the poor is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. Uh, notice that it says continue to remember the poor not you need to start remembering the poor it says you know please continue to remember the poor it was something that Paul and the early church were already doing it was part of the DNA of the early church so when we go back to the beginning of Acts when it records the early church we like to read these passages in Acts about the early church don't we and we think it's like a model for what church should look like because they did it so well they were the first believers and so this is you know we like to model ourselves on them and it says in Acts 2 they did loads of things they broke bread together they prayed together they worshiped together they had community but it says verse 45 they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need they would sell their own stuff in order to provide for one another. So their idea of community wasn't just, how are you doing? Oh, you've had a tough week. Oh, that's your situation. That's a shame. I'll pray for you. It went beyond that into the depths of practical provision. And often I imagine sacrifice. I'll sell my stuff. I'll have less so that you can have something or you can have more than me even. Who knows? And it says, the Lord added daily to their number. They were a growing church. A bit further on in Acts, uh, Acts 4, verse 33, it says this, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. With great power, they testified about him. And God's grace was powerfully at work in them. Who wouldn't want to say that about their church? God was powerfully at work in their church. That's a great thing, isn't it? But it's interesting to me, that verse about God's power being at work in them is sandwiched in between two other verses that talk about caring, that talk about the poor. So let me show you, verse 32, this is Acts 4, 32. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Then comes the verse about with great power, God was at work amongst them. And then comes the next verse, 34. There was no needy person among them. 
And I just think that's a really interesting observation. You know, is there a link between caring, remembering the poor, and the growth of the church? Because you know, the more we care, the more we serve, the more we love people, the more people see God's heart and God's love, and they're drawn to that added to their number daily. That's Acts chapter 4. Acts 6 talks about how daily food was given out to the widows. The widows were a marginalized group in society. In those days, if you weren't married, you were worthless. But they cared for the widows. So there's loads more I could point out. But Paul and Barnabas are continuing to remember the poor because they already do. They're part of a church that already does that, that shows remarkable care for those in need. So, of course, they're keen to continue that. But let's look back. Before the early church, Jesus, Jesus walked the earth, and his mandate was to bring good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Freedom for the captive, sight for the blind. That's in Luke 4. He spent his time not hobnobbing with leaders and networking with those with influence, but he spent his time with the people that everyone else turned their noses up at. The poor, the prostitute, the tax collector, the leper, children, women. He modeled caring for the poor. It says he looked at the crowds and he was filled with compassion. He taught us that it was difficult for people with wealth to get into the kingdom of heaven, not because money is wrong, but because when we have money, the temptation is to hold on to it, hold on to it too tightly when we should be prepared to give it away. He taught us that we should invite the poor and the cripples and the lame to our parties rather than just enjoying nice time with our friends and those we want to impress. And there's so much more that Jesus said, and we haven't got time to look at it. Let's go back again into the Old Testament. The law system in the Old Testament was built to be generous and to be compassionate. So for example, we go all the way back to Leviticus 23, verse 22, and it talks about the laws of gleaning, of farming, and it says, you know what? When you do your harvesting, do, do what you need to do, but don't go right to the edges of your field. Just leave a bit all the way around the edge so that the poor can come for free and just take a little bit of what you have. That was the law. The law was built in a way that the poor would be included. And there was the year of Jubilee. Roughly every 50 years, everybody's debts got cancelled. If you were a slave, you got set free and sent home to your family. It was a blank slate for everybody. Proverbs is a book full of wisdom, and it says a lot about the poor, but here's just one. Proverbs 28, 27. He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, and he who closes his eyes to them receive curses. He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, and he who closes his eyes to them receives curses. Closing your eyes to the poor, in my mind, implies that you have actually seen they're there and you've chosen to shut your eyes. The prophets, as we know, they got very angry about injustice, about exploitation of the poor. And there's some really strong language in the, in the prophets. They're the voice of God to the people. And Amos says this, Amos 5.21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to your music, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. And similar, strong language in Isaiah 1:15. When you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening because your hands are full of blood. Seek 
justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. I don't know about you, but those words sting a little bit. You know, I hate your music. I won't listen to your prayers. You know, that's, that is strong language, isn't it? You know, and, and we love to meet as a church, don't we? I love it. I love the fact that we come together and we worship. I love it when we have prayer meetings like we did just this week gone. Those things are good and important, but without justice, without remembering the poor, God doesn't care. God doesn't want them. And those words hit hard. Tim Keller, who's an author and a pastor in America, he wrote this. Justice is not just one more thing that needs to be added to the people's portfolio of religious behavior. It's not one more thing to be added to the portfolio. A lack of justice is a sign that the worshippers' hearts are not right with God at all. That their prayers and their religious observances are just filled with, with self and pride. A lack of justice is a sign that the worshippers' hearts are not right with God. What I'm trying to show you very briefly, and there's so much more, is that this is a pattern throughout history. God has got justice and the poor very high on his agenda. It's like a stick of rock, the Bible. You can cut it open at any point and you will find God's heart for the poor there. Remembering the poor is a pattern through scripture. It is also a command for us today. So some people read this passage and they argue that the instruction here to remember the poor was specifically meaning remember the poor in the church in Jerusalem. Remember the poor in the church in Jerusalem because it was a church that was poor. It was known for its poverty. And so perhaps that's what Peter and James and the other leaders were saying to Paul. Actually, off you go and remember us. You know, maybe they wanted uh, Paul and Barnabas and Titus to start a little campaign. They could call it Jerusalem Aid and they could record a charity single and they could have a bake sale in their communities to raise money for the church there. And uh, maybe they could have a dress down day at work where they go fishing in their... I don't know what, dressed down fishing clothes. You know, perhaps if that's really what it meant, remember the poor in the church in Jerusalem, then that's what we should read it as today. You know, the instruction is, remember poor Christians. Just remember the poor Christians. And it goes no wider than that. And that's a nice idea, and it's good that we care for poor Christians, but I don't think that is what this is saying. I don't think this is what this particular verse is saying. Do you know that, that view that, oh, it's just for the Jerusalem church, that's a really recent thing. The earliest church fathers, Tertullian, Oregon, uh, etc., they, they just read that as remember the poor, as remember the poor. They didn't think, oh, it must be talking about the church in Jerusalem. It's a recent development that people have started to think otherwise, that it was, it was more uh, narrow. Also, in Romans... Chapter 15, Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, look, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and I've got an offering to give them. I've got some money for them. Will you just pray that they receive that well? Just pray that that goes okay. I don't think that Paul would be asking that if, he, if he'd been commanded to take the money anyway, if he'd been told, fundraise for us. I don't think he'd be saying, oh, can you pray? I'm not sure how it's going to go down. Also, this collection that Paul then takes up for the church in Jerusalem, he's doing it in response to a prophetic word. 
He's not taking the money to Jerusalem because he's been told to fundraise for Jerusalem. He's taking the money because someone in Acts chapter 11, Agabus, had a prophetic word. There's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. There's going to be a time when Jerusalem are in need. And so Paul and his people gathered money together to take. So the response, the money going to Jerusalem wasn't because he'd been commanded to do that. It was because of what God had said. I think this verse, remember the poor, means this. Remember the poor. Full stop. In your church community, outside your church community, remember the poor. That's what it meant then. I believe it's what it means now. Remember the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the lonely, the bankrupt, the outcast. Remember the poor. It's a command for us now, today. So in City Church, what does that look like if you want to uh, to remember the poor as part of this church family? There's lots of ways in which we can uh, remember the poor. Lifestyle. We meet on a Monday night. Lifestyle. We're now calling it one of the services of City Church. People come, they get dinner together, and then they come upstairs, worship, open the word together. And the people that come to Lifestyle are people with significant lifestyle issues who need support. And it's an amazing ministry of remembering the poor. It's been one of the fastest growing ministries, in fact, in this church. We also run drop-ins, a women's drop-in and a men's drop-in during the week where people can come. We can offer them help, support, signpost them to agencies that could be useful for them. We run lunch club on a Saturday for the elderly who are vulnerable people in our society. We run Restore, which is a ministry working with women in the sex industry. And we run Storehouse, which is... um, essentially like a food bank and you know like Ali said we've been doing our stats because next week's vision Sunday we have a review of the year gone it's brilliant and then we cast some vision for the year ahead which is very exciting and this year storehouse at Gilt Park we have had 226 different people knock on our doors and say can I have a food parcel 226 people needing that That's 1,966 parcels, and if you break that down, that's 19,612 items given away this year, an average of 38 parcels a week. And that's just what we do in the church. There's wider stuff. There's wider stuff in our city that you can do to help remember the poor. There's stuff globally you can do to remember the poor, and I haven't got time to go into it right now. But remembering the poor is for us today. It's a command for us today. Let's take that further. Remembering the poor is about radical inclusion. Um, A couple of years ago, I lived with a girl called Lindsay, and um, when it was her 30th birthday party, you know, everyone was saying, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to have a big party. And she decided, yeah, I'm going to have a big party. And she decided to take seriously uh, what Jesus said about inviting the poor and the blind and the lame to banquets. So for her birthday, what she did was she hired a hall and she invited all the clients from the local homeless shelter to come to her birthday party. And she invited her her friends as well. But, you know, she said to her friends, don't come and think that you're here to serve them. I want you to just mingle. You're all guests at my party, so don't kind of think that you need to look after them. Just chat, just be friends. You're all equal here. And I just thought that was amazing. That was her 30th birthday party and she invited the poor And she gave them all kind of food parcels like party bags to leave with as well. It was amazing. In Galatians 
uh, 2 verse 6, Paul says this, God does not show favoritism. You know, Paul is there in Jerusalem, hanging out with leaders and influential people, and he's like, I'm not bothered. I'm not bothered who they are. He says, whatever they were made no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Why should I, Paul says, and why should we? Why should we? We are all equal in the eyes of God, right? We are all sinners and in need of God's mercy. God sent his son to die for all of us so that our sin could be forgiven. We didn't deserve it, but Jesus' death meant radical inclusion for us into God's family. And later on, we want to make an opportunity for you if you've never asked Jesus into your life and you want to accept his love, his grace, his radical inclusion. If you want to do that later on, we would love to make an opportunity for that. But remembering the poor is about radical inclusion. Uh, a couple of months ago, we had a big gathering where all of our city church sites got together and Pete Gregg came to speak. Was anyone there? It was a great day. Pete Gregg is the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement and a, a great guy. And he had a prophetic picture for us as a church. And he said, I saw, you know, like looking down on Aberdeen, he said, and I saw um, parts of the city lit up, houses lit up all around the region, places of hospitality, inclusion, and radical family. Not just pretty nuclear family, talking about adoption, fostering, single mothers, children, the elderly. Radical inclusion is not just about specific ministries. It's not just about the things that I mentioned, lifestyle, storehouse, the drop-ins. It is about all that we do. It is about who we are outside of Sundays, including Sundays. It's about our whole church life. So lifestyle, for example, on a Monday night, that began as a ministry because there were a bunch of people coming on a Sunday who just felt like they didn't fit in, who didn't feel included in what we did. And so we put something on for them and it's grown into a massive ministry. But here's the thing, it's not good enough to just put extra stuff on for other people as a tag on to what we do. The challenge is to change what we do so that we're not in that position in the first place, so that people aren't sat on a Sunday thinking, I don't fit in, I'm not included. It changes how we do everything. And so, you know, that's why we try really hard, for example, to not use jargony language, and we, we like to think that we're fairly laid back and informal. You know, we try really hard to include people and make them feel welcome. And if we're ever doing something like a weekend away or uh, some kind of event that costs money, we will try our best to make sure people who can't afford it get paid for and can still come. It's about everything that we do. Radical inclusion means that we develop relationships with one another here that move beyond, hello, how are you doing, to, oh, I see you're on your own. Why don't you come and sit with us? It says, we're going for lunch later. Do you want to come? It says, let me introduce you to these guys over here, and then you can get to know a few more people. It says, you've got nowhere to live. Well, I'll help you find somewhere. In fact, I've got a spare bedroom you can have. It says, I will phone you next week to find out how you got on with that appointment. It says, I know that we're different. We're from different backgrounds, but we can still be friends. It says, I'll help you with that paperwork that you're struggling with. Radical inclusion says, I want to get to know you, I care about you, and I want you in my church family. 
The gospel is for everyone, regardless of our age, regardless of our gender, our geography, our social background. The gospel is for everyone, not just those whose faces fit, and not just for those who've got a stable um, family background or a steady job. There are so many stories we could tell because God has been good to us as a church. There's so many stories that we could tell about um, people that God has brought into our church family and how God has transformed their life. Uh, I want to briefly share a little bit about Mary's story. And many of you, you know Mary. I don't know where she is. Uh, when we first met Mary, and she knows I'm saying this, it's all right, I'm not, I'm not springing a surprise on her. When we first met Mary years ago, she came to Lifestyle and she was not sorted. Her life was chaotic. She had a partner who was in and out of jail and she was a drug addict. But she became part of our church family and she gave her life to God, which was fantastic. And that didn't mean that things were sorted out for her straight away, but she was part of our family. People cared about her, people asked after her, people wanted to support her. And then when she found herself with an unplanned pregnancy, it was the church that rallied round to support her financially, practically, giving her somewhere to live, uh, praying with her, just helping her out with all the stuff that goes along with having a baby. And now, she is drug-free, she is working, she is studying, she's a mum, and she's serving on team here in our church family. Isn't God amazing what he can do? It's all down to God. All glory goes to God. He has turned her life around. But I tell you what, the church community have a massive part to play in that. Could you imagine if we had turned her away? Well, you're a drug addict. You're not really welcome here. Could you imagine if we'd have said, well, you need to get your act together and then come back? Or, you know, you're making poor life choices. Or, well, you got yourself pregnant. That's your fault. Could you imagine if we'd have said those things or communicated that even the way we behaved towards her? It would be a different story. Radical inclusion made a massive difference. Glory to God, but the church have a part to play. 1 John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he loves us and God shows no favoritism. Okay, finally, remembering the poor involves a rejection of passivity. Verse 10, remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do all along. Paul was eager to remember the poor. I had a little look, you know, what other words, what's the word synonym? And what other words could you be using in the place of eager? Uh, so words like keen, enthusiastic, avid, fervent, committed, dedicated, hungry. All of those words, they are not passive words, are they? You can't be passively committed or passively enthusiastic, I don't believe. That's, that's called half-heartedness. <laughs> remembering the poor is not something that can be passive, and I don't believe Paul was passive about remembering the poor. He was eager to do it. And as I thought about that, I wondered, for myself and for many of us here, you know, are we satisfied with too easily with a, like a passive remembering the poor, you know, a nod towards social justice, a tip of the hat. You know, is it enough to be 
satisfied that I have a direct debit every month that goes to a charity? Is it enough that I buy fair trade bananas? Those things are good, okay? It's good to give money to charity. It's good to buy fair trade bananas. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Those things are good, and we mustn't stop doing that because they're important and they do make a difference. But I just think there's more. God has more for us, and I believe that God is asking us to remember the poor in a way that involves getting our hands dirty. I really believe that getting our hands dirty. Because the truth is, and I know that many of you will know this, but the situation is dire. The world we live in is messy and broken. And I've got some stats, and thank you to Taryn who put these stats together, but these are some some stats about the world that we're living in at the moment. There are 10,000 slaves in the UK. 10,000 people are living as slaves today in the UK. And these stats now, these are from Scotland alone. Last year in Scotland, there were 746 suicides. There were 16,000 kids in care. There were 40,000 homeless applications made. There are 60,000 people affected by drugs. There are nine-year-olds that are addicted to pornography. And there are five million people in Scotland who don't know Jesus yet. When we know that's the situation, we see how dire it is. How can we close our eyes to that? How can we close our eyes to the poor? How can we remain passive? You know, I know that for some of us, you're sitting there thinking, well, it's, it's not that I don't care, I do care, but, and uh, maybe you feel scared. Maybe it's fear that's stopping you, you know, oh, I'm nervous. How could I? I'm from such a different world to that person. How could I connect with them? Like, it just wouldn't work. Or I'd be out of my depth. Or I'd be, it's just too uncomfortable and awkward. And I want to say, well, yeah, maybe it is. But is it right to be comfortable? Is it right to always stay comfortable and sit back and watch someone else's struggle? God gives us what we need. And His love casts out fear or maybe it's not that you don't care but you've just been you've become a bit cynical well you know I could help the poor but the thing is they probably you know they might not be grateful or they might take advantage of me or you know actually some of them they just don't deserve it they've put themselves in those situations and they don't actually deserve my help yes you might be right yes they might take advantage of you yes They might not be grateful. You're right. Is that a reason not to do it? Do I deserve God's grace? Do I always show him how grateful I am for his grace? No. But that's not why we serve the poor. Not because they deserve it or because they might take advantage. We serve because it's on God's heart. Or the other thing we might say, it's not that I don't care, but the thing is, it's just not my calling. You know, we can't all be Mother Teresa or Caroline Crombie. You know, I'm called to the worship team. She's just ducked because she's embarrassed. I'm called to the worship team or I do tea and coffee and hospitality. That's my thing. You know, I love it that you guys do all the social transformation stuff, but it's not my calling. And I want us to think about that again today. I don't think that's true. I think there's a responsibility on all of us, all of us, to play our part. And so if you're a worship leader, then, sorry, it's a bit loud. If you're a worship leader, then 
They flip in need worship leaders to go into the prison and do the services there. If you're a worship leader or a musician, we have worship at Lifestyle on a Monday night. You can come and lead worship there. If hospitality is your thing, why don't you come and cook for one of the uh, social transformation ministries or just open up your home to people in the church that you don't know or could really do with coming and having a hot meal with you. Can I encourage you just to reevaluate that today? If that's your... If your feeling is, you know, it's not me, it's not my thing, can I encourage you to have a look again at what God has put in your heart and the gifts he's given you? We all have a responsibility. Remember that stick of rock? Wherever you open the Bible, you'll find something about God's heart for the poor. We can't ignore that. To know the issues, to know the mess, to know the statistics, and on the other hand, to know God's heart for that and to choose to ignore it. I think that's scary (laughs) because I don't know about you but I don't want to get to heaven and come face to face with God actually at the gate and for him to say you know what I was hungry and you didn't feed me and I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink I don't want that you might know that phrase uh, attributed to Edmund Burke all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Don't do nothing. Remembering the poor cannot be passive. Do something. Perhaps our prayer this morning just needs to be, well, Lord, would you make me eager? Because I don't feel eager to remember the poor. And we can pray for that in a bit. God, break my heart for the poor. Show me. Perhaps you do loads of wonderful stuff with the poor and I want to commend you for that if you do and encourage you, keep going. Don't grow weary of doing good, it says later in Galatians. But also, don't get complacent. Don't sit there and be like, oh, that's a nice message, Hazel, but I'm doing all right with that. Ask God, what what else? What more, Lord? Because this is important. I know that this has been maybe a bit bit heavy, message this morning and I just want you to know that I stand here and preach this to myself because God has spoken to me quite clearly about this this week so I'm not standing here in a position of I do this really well I know I don't but it's important that we hear it again it's really important so what I'd like us to do is stand and I'd just like to pray about some of this We could preach a whole sermon series on the poor. There is so much stuff in Scripture. I've really just scratched the surface today, and I'm aware of that. But I hope something of God's heart would just sink a little deeper into us today and that we'd act upon that. That's really my prayer for us, for myself and for our family here. So let's pray.